Well, Father, thank you that we can sing as your people. We can sing with confidence. We can sing with joy that of your rule and reign we'll ever sing that all the glory belongs to you. That we can confidence declare that the work you began, you will complete the work you began in our lives, the work you began in this church, the work you began around us and in others we love, Lord, you will complete. The mission that you have set out upon, Lord, you will complete. Lord, all the glory belongs to you and you alone. So would you help us to be a people that love to proclaim of the glory of Jesus Christ, that loves to declare to a watching world of the glory of Jesus Christ, would you Help us be those who live in the good of, of all the glory being to Jesus Christ, that we would not be those who try to compete with your glory, that we would not be those who exchange that for some lesser thing, Lord, for some way that just robs you of what you are worth and do. But would you transform our families and ourselves by, by recognizing that all the glory belongs to you. So I pray even this morning that we'd be more aware of the glory that is due you, and that we would live more in light of that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We may be seated. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to the end of the chapter this morning. By the way, I'm Adam. I think I know most of you here, but if you're at home or here, I'm one of the pastors, and I like you. I'm happy to be with you, and I'm, I think that's who I am. Okay. By the turning, just in, in Matthew chapter 8, again, verses 18 through 34, by way of introduction, I, as a student growing up, I, I didn't have to go to the principal's office a lot, so I wasn't, you know, one of these kids who was there all the time, but I did need to go at times, and I distinctly remember the first time I had to go to my elementary school principal's office, and I had to come and meet the real, his name was Mr. Yastershock, I had to meet the real Mr. Yastershock, and so before I had sort of been sent to his office, my impression of him was he, he was a big guy, he was an older guy, but he was just a fun-loving guy, right? right? He was the guy who, like, um, how would I say, he was the guy who, you know, it was ugly sweater day, and he'd be wearing this ugly sweater, and, you know, it was field day, and he'd get our game started, or, you know, like, I remember one time we raised money for something, and he was in a dunk tank, and he was just this, he was this kind of character. And my impression of him was, of course, we had to go, and we had to learn at school, but he just wanted us to have fun while we were learning. So that was my impression of, of who he was, and sort of, sort of just his role in the school was just kind of make sure that the fun kind of went, you know, was kind of happening as, as the teachers were learning. Though when I was sent to his office, I just, I don't remember all he said. I just remember, the, as soon as he opened his mouth, I was just given a very different impression of who this man was. So if you would have told me, as I was walking, if you would have asked me, well, who's, who's in charge of this school? I would have, I would have said Mr. Yastershock, but... I don't know, sort of felt like the students can do what they want until I sat down across from them. And all of a sudden, I mean, this big guy with the deepest voice that I ever remember hearing just began, young man. And it was just very clear to me. As I, I literally, I was shaking and like I was just turning into Jello, just like, oh, you're, you're really different than who I thought, right? Like, you're the authority. Like, there's no sort of like, well, we're going to work together and sort of form a committee and see who's in charge of the school. As soon as he opened his mouth, it was very clear. I, I got a different impression of him, and I don't ever want to come back to his office again and meet this side of Mr. Yastershock. Like, that was just the, the going impression that I had. 
don't know if you've ever had a moment with someone like that, that sort of, as you meet sort of the other side of them, you come away with a very different impression. But in Matthew chapter 8, that's what is, many are having that moment with Christ. The sense of, oh, this, this one's not quite who we thought he was. See, so far in the book of Matthew, it's been his birth, and he's resisted Satan, and he's taught like no other, and he's healed diseases with a word, and for all who would come, and he's drawing a crowd, and it's easy to see why. But most of them have failed to see who he really is. See, they, they, were, they were following Christ for, for all he could do for them, and sort of, it was, just, it, really, it was just easy to follow him. It was easy to follow this guy who was just sort of healing everybody with a word, and they were, they were failing to see who he really was and what discipleship to him really looks like. And so this is a passage about true discipleship to, to the real Christ. Christ is shown to be very different in our superficial impressions of him, different than who the crowd thought him to be, and far more worthy of following so I think as we read this passage, we want to ask ourselves, am I, am I following him for, for what I gain, or am I, am I following who he really is for who he really is? So we're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Verse 23, And when he got into the boat, his disciples, had followed, him. His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Verse 28, And then he came to the other side, to the country of good armies, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with me? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demon begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd were the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So three very distinct stories from the life of Christ. But yeah, I think we're going to see three consistent themes throughout them. And so we're going to look at those themes in, in each of our three points this morning. And the first point we're going to look at is the way to follow. The way to follow. Now, I'm, 
I'm not a man who likes to brag a lot, but um, a couple years ago when we moved into our, our house, I, I, I bought this really cool ladder, and so I've got this, it, it's the coolest ladder you're going to see. It's, um, it's really big, it gets really high, and it's one of these like flexible ladders, that, like you can bend it at like a bunch of different dimensions, so it's one that can be like, you know, just a couple feet high if you want to get something big, it can go like all the way, like this really high roof, and it just bends at these different angles, and it's just... I, I don't know what your ladder situation is at your own house, but like I just confidently say ours is better. Like it's a it's a cool ladder. I, I really I really do like it, and I wanted you to be aware of that. But um, when when we when we got the ladder, it came with literally a book of like instructions on like how to use the ladder, right? And it was one of these just I mean literally it came with this book. And the first half of the book was. Like basically, you know, the book was like you know how to use it, all all the different stuff, you know how to do different things. But the first half of the book was how not to use the ladder. It was basically it was just page after page of like do not attempt this, right? Like do not do not put it directly against the power lines. Like do not climb this way. Do not try this angle to bend it. Like it was all these kind of things. Like don't pull chain falls from the ladder. I mean, it was just sort of basically there was a section like here's all the ways you could die using this ladder. I mean, it was just it was this kind of thing. And so they spent more time telling us like what not to attempt to do than the actual way to use it. And I don't know if you've ever gotten instructions for anything like that, but here in this passage we get example after example of how not to be a disciple. We sort of get a primer here in, in these stories. And the first story, are, to our modern ears, without context, it can sound like Jesus is being needlessly harsh or that he's being unkind. But in reality, Jesus was making sure that his true disciples know that to follow him is a life of total allegiance. These two men were coming to him and they were looking to follow him wrongly. They were looking to follow him on his own terms in their own way, not understanding who he was and what that claim makes over their life. The first one comes, he's a scribe, and he says, I will follow you anywhere. Now, scribes were respected, wealthy, learned men in this day. They were esteemed in society. Now, you ever hear, I, I don't know, this might be like, just my family thing, but you ever hear the expression, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Like, it's sort of a way of saying, like, hey, that's actually, we like rocket scientists. We think they're smart. We think, like, you know, like, they can do really complex things. Well, they were sort of like the rocket scientists of this day, right? Like, they... They, they, were, they were esteemed, they were considered sort of the noble and the learned in this day. And here one comes to him and says, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And you would think Jesus would be saying, like, hey, like, this, is a, this, is a, this is a score for the kingdom, right? Like, you've got a scribe here. And, like, I'd be encouraging Jesus to sort of close the sale at this point, right? This is where I would go, or at the very least, just commend him. Like, hey, like, you're saying you'll, you'll go anywhere with him. Like, this, is, this seems to be good. And so Jesus' response seems to be very odd when he says, okay, the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests and I have nowhere to lay my head. And the implicit question is, do you still want to follow me? Now, we aren't told this explicitly, but I think the plain reading of this is that this man moved on and didn't follow him. That's why another came and tried his luck. But what's going on in this passage? Jesus is making this claim to the one who would have been powerful and respected. Okay. Just know this, that where I go is not a life filled with respect or wealth. It's not of self-preservation, but it's of self-denial. It's not of power, but it's of powerlessness. I'm going on the road of loneliness and suffering and being misunderstood. 
And so to follow me, it means you have to be willing to follow me, not just to a destination at the end of the road, but on a road that is difficult and narrow. So this man leaves and then another one comes and the next man, Jesus is not being cruel when he says let the dead bury their dead, but really in, in context and in this day, what, what this burial really meant was, let me, okay, so, you know, there's sort of something that happened in town, let me first put, in a sense, finish putting all these affairs that have to do with my father in order, it's probably, that, you know, there's, this wasn't sort of a man new and suffering and sort of, you know, this, this was a man who was sort of like, okay, I need to conclude some legal matters. I need to, you know, sort of there's this inheritance and there's financial stuff. There's just sort of all these legal issues that probably need to be taken care of. And listen, when all that's done, when I'm sort of get all that stuff out of the way, when I have the time, I'm, I'm all in. I'll, I'll follow you then. This wasn't insensitivity by Christ, but this is this recognition. This man was looking to follow Christ after his other matters had been taken care of on, on his own timing in the way that this man thought would be best. Sort of an attitude of, I'll, I'll get to that, Christ. Christ is making sure he knew that we don't follow out of convenience, we follow out of total allegiance. When he says and where he says and how he says, and allegiance to Christ is over everything else. It's over family and work and politics and sports and school and friends and girlfriends. And it's in Christ first, and it's in Christ only, or it's not in Christ at all. And so he was making sure that he understood that, that to follow Christ is a life of full allegiance and devotion wherever he says, when he says. Because those in the crowd, they wanted a healer. The crowd likes a healer and this teacher, but Christ is not interested in the crowd. He's not interested in having a crowd. He recognizes that a disciple is one who follows their master anywhere and above anything. And so he saw beyond their their words, but was really behind it. And he recognizes that they didn't really see him at all. They didn't see his worth, and they're not seeing his worth. They didn't really see him at all. In the next story, we, we see something else the disciples do not follow with. Disciples do not follow in fear. And you likely know the men on, on board this boat, many of them were accomplished fishermen. And a storm came, and it was a storm. I mean, this is, this is in the verse, right? It is a giant storm. Waves are coming onto the boat. That this group of experienced men thought they were doomed, and so fear overtook them. I think this is often. I think this is a helpful picture of how fear often works in our hearts. See, fear is often caused by living with an incomplete view of the situation. Which means the way to drive out fear is not by sort of wishing the best or by lying about the situation, it's by seeing the entire picture. See, suppose you have a, a kid who's afraid of a, a, I don't know, during a storm, a tree falling down on the house, right? So during the storm, a tree might come and hit the roof, and they're, and they're scared of that. You, you could lie to your child, and it could work for a while, but no, the tree wouldn't come down. That, that, that wouldn't happen. And that might work for a while, you know, until something bad actually does happen, you don't need me to tell you if you live long enough, whether it be a tree or not, bad things do happen. The solution isn't saying that it can't happen or it won't happen because they do. So we look back at these men, we see how foolish they were that they were afraid in the moment. Now why, why was it foolish that they were afraid? Why? Because 
Because men have never been lost at sea. The storms have never taken anyone. Now, the, the, the storm was real. But there's no comfort in minimizing the storm. But the rest of the story is this. And Jesus was with them. Right? Don't, don't be afraid of the storm because the maker of the storm is with you. Yeah, listen, the storm is more powerful than your boat. It's more powerful than your sailing ability and even your faith. Good thing someone else is with you in the boat. See, fear is so often fueled by, by, by the unknown, right? The unknown of circumstances. Or it, it's still, fear, fear loves the, sort of the what if, what if, what if this, what if this, what if this. And it leaves out what we know of God and of his purposes and his power and his presence. Some disciples do not fear, not because nothing scary can, can happen, but who is with us as we walk. The one, this one who is with us is more powerful than whatever we face. The one who allows whatever we face, he is the one who, who promises to use whatever we face for our good and for his glory. And listen, a boat in a storm is a scary place, especially if you forget who you're riding with. And in the third story, we see Jesus casting out demons. And we see two men freed, but in the freeing of these two men, a large herd of pigs were killed as the demons left the men when they were pigs and were drowned in the water. And the story ends with this town asking Jesus to leave. Now, it's obvious, right? If you, if the way to be a bad disciple is asking Jesus to leave, right? That's what a bad discipleship there. That one's probably pretty, pretty obvious. But, but we need to recognize why were they asking him to leave? Why? Why didn't they want him here? See, the, the town was upset because in these pigs dying, I mean, a large portion of money was, was, was gone, right? And this was a herd. This was, this was for farming. This was for food. This, this economically hurt them. And I think they, they asked him to leave because they had eyes on, on the earthly cost. They had eyes on sort of the, they had eyes on sort of on, on what it cost them in, in temporary means. They had eyes on sort of earthly goals and they, they saw Jesus sort of taking, sort of, it, it hurt their earthly goals. It, it cost them in an earthly way. And so here's what they Heaven came, right? And they missed it because they were just focused on the here and now. They were just focused on, on sort of their earthly ends and their earthly ambitions. But here's what happened. Jesus came and he cast out demons. He spared men. The power of God's full display, right? The mission of God is happening. And they miss it because they're just distracted by earthly affairs and how this affects them here and now. And we're going to miss it as disciples if, if the focus is on our little kingdom and right here, right now, and if we take our eyes off of his kingdom and his purposes. The way to follow Jesus is to follow him in faith, not fear, with allegiance to nothing else above him, whatever he calls which leads to the next question, which is simply this, is he worth it? So, point number two I want to look at is the reason to follow. The reason to follow. So to follow Jesus, it requires total allegiance, not just Jesus first, but Jesus exclusively, a forsaking of all other earthly allegiances. To follow requires complete faith in him, not turning around when it's hard or dangerous or costly. It will mean leaving the crowd and often following him on the long, lonely road of painful discipleship. It is a life of self-denial. It's his kingdom first and it's his kingdom only. So, why do it? 
In verse 27, he answers our question for us with a question of their own. And after seeing Christ calm the great storm, and with a single word bring peace, they marvel and they ask, what sort of man is this? They're not asking a question of, they're, they're, they're asking a question of identity, right? They're, they're not asking, hey, what else can he do? They're, they're asking, who is he? Who is he that is more powerful than nature? Who is he that with a, with a word brings chaos to peace? Who is he that can demand total allegiance from man and total allegiance of nature? Where and when every drop of rain will fall. Who is this man? The winds and the sea obey him. Well, we know that he is the maker of the winds and waves, that he is the sovereign maker of all things. In verse 20 in this passage, he is identified as the Son of Man. He is the long-promised Messiah coming to fulfill all God's promises. He is the dividing line of human history. And who he is is not subject to our opinion or his popularity at any moment. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. He is the one that spoke and, and, and out of darkness came light. He is the one who, who speaks and out of waves crashing comes total peace. He is the one worthy of all trust and all worship. And some, when they saw him, they left him because they missed who he was. They were more worried about they want their own family affairs, or they were more worried about sort of what it would cost them. They were those in this town who were preoccupied with very earthly things. What a massive miscalculation of who he is and what his value is. See, he, he is costly and he demands everything. Do they want one who could add to their earthly success and earthly life? one that could add to their earthly ambitions. They wanted Christ plus all these other things. They failed to see that Christ is everything. See, the, the true equation that we, that we see in Scripture is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That this Christ is the long promise of Messiah. He is the maker and sustainer. Yes, he costs everything, and he's worth even more. He demands all because he is worth all. The third thing I want to look at is the one to follow. The one to follow. So the reason to follow him, he is the Son of Man, he is the Christ, he is the sovereign ruler of all things. And the one we follow does not require perfect faith, but simple faith that he is the perfect one. In this passage, we see that he is the per- that he is perfect and sovereign over We see that he rules creations with a single word, right? Just brings peace to the storm. He judges evil in this passage. Right in verse 29, the demons recognize that this is the Son of God and they didn't battle him for supremacy. They knew their end was at hand. They, they, they begged him to go. What a picture, right? We see these demons who, with a single word, he, he just says go and darkness and evil flee. There's, there's no sense that here in this passage that, that Christ and, and Satan and all his minions are sort of equal in this cosmic struggle and we'll see, we'll see who wins in the end. No, no, what we see here is one rules and one is allowed to roam. One is allowed to kind of be active till Christ says enough and then evil is just finished. 
He saves people. He, he saves people from the storm, from sure death, from evil, from Satan's grip. He's offering the scribe and his other follower a chance to be saved from a life spent on lesser pursuits than a life fully devoted to him. So in the first passage, he is calling disciples to a life of self-denial. But he was not putting their hope in their ability to be those who properly deny themselves. He's not calling us to a life of self-denial and and if you do that right, you're in good shape. No, what he calls us to is a life of self-denial. But our hope is in the one who left all the worship of heaven, who left all that he was due, who left perfect fellowship to, to deny himself and to take up his cross, who had no place to lay his head because he left his home to come to us and deny himself, as Philippians 2 would say, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the second passage, he, he wasn't waiting for the disciples' faith before he acted. He wasn't waiting for them to trust before he would move. He was the one that when the storm was raging and fear was raging and there was no faith found in that boat, he doesn't wait for his disciples to just have a little bit of faith and then he'll work. He acts. And in his acting, he reveals why he is worthy of all faith. He was, he was asleep in the boat. Not in indifference. Not in lack of care. He was asleep. Because his heart was in perfect trust and perfect faith in God. While his disciples worried, he was at peace. He had perfect confidence in him. He was not shaken, and he is not shaken by our unbelief or by our circumstances. He is faithful and steady through every storm. And he was in perfect peace on their behalf. See, our, our hope isn't in our faith. Our hope is in that He is the faithful one. And He's the faithful one for us. In the third passage, we see God, we see how Christ casts out evil, who evil flees from. Our hope is not that evil will not attack. Our hope is not that we can overcome the darkness in ourselves or in the world. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ who is the conqueror of evil, who conquers it on our behalf. Our hope is not that we can make ourselves pure, but that God is the conqueror of evil. Ultimately, all these point to not just one time he would do these things, one time, one example in his life, but they all point to the cross and the resurrection and his return where he would conquer evil forever and all of its consequences. So that there is nothing to fear, not, not even sin or the grave. He would suffer the shame of the cross to be raised again as the God of all glory. And God calls his disciples to follow with full allegiance and with no fear because he is worthy. This passage is not asking our opinion of Christ's worth. It is declaring what is true of his worth. And so this is a call to freshly place our faith and allegiance in him. To remember that whenever... Whatever fear presses on us, whenever fear presses on us, it's a call to remember the rest of the story, that our God is with us, 
the sovereign maker, sustainer of all things, the one who uses even evil for good of those who love him, who doesn't always answer the why of the storm, but shows us who is with you in the storm and who is the God over the storm in your life. This is a call to, to check out. I've given full allegiance to Christ. Or am I holding something back because it's costly here and now? Listen, to submit to Christ costs everything. But to, to not submit to Christ costs even more. If I do it, ask fourth grade Adam who who's in charge of the school. Now, I would have said Mickey Ashton. But it wasn't until I really met him that I wanted to stop being a fool. I said, I'm, I'm aware that you would declare he's worthy. That you would say, I want to live my life in full allegiance to him. I think this is a, a call for all of us and we need to continually examine our lives, our lives in full allegiance to Him. Are there areas where, for my, how I use my free time is fully in allegiance to Him. How, how I use my finances, how I, what entertainment choices I make, what friends I make, how, what, I, what I pursue. Is there some area that, that's not in full allegiance to Him. There's a call to remind ourselves of His worth and what He has due. That He is worth all of our allegiance and all of our faith. This is a, a call to, to, to cast our sights again and remind ourselves on, on what His value really is. That He is worth everything. Yeah. I'm closing prayer in Father, would you give your people faith this morning to, to once again realign themselves in total allegiance to Jesus Christ, in total allegiance to your ways and your purposes, to not be preoccupied with our small and pitiful and earthly kingdoms, but to once again align ourselves with you and to, in every, not just to say the word, but in every corner and detail of our lives, to live lives submitted to you, I pray. Lord, would you give your people grace to freshly follow you in every corner of our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Church, what a privilege it is that we are followers of Christ. Followers of the Son of God, the Messiah, that we are able to put our allegiance in Him. What a privilege. And that in that allegiance we find peace. Even in the midst of whatever storm. And that in Him we place our hope because He is the power. What a privilege. And so church, we want to, before we leave, before I just close in prayer, the Spirit was speaking to you and you would like prayer for any If in these challenging times you are aware that it is hard to follow Christ first and foremost, we want to pray. If there is 
you're having a hard time finding peace. Seeing the story of Jesus sleeping in the midst, finding peace in the midst of storm. What a crazy. Desiring Jesus to conquer evil. I'm going If you're here in person with us, Adam or myself would love to pray with you. Come up to the front and love to pray with you. If you are at home, Ken is at home as well. You can just push that little request prayer button. Ken will give you a box and pray with you. But as we leave, I want to pray, and may this be a prayer, the prayer of Paul, the church. May we, may we go out and trusting that Jesus will answer. Pray with me, Father. May you fill your church this morning with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of you, Lord, in such a way that is fully pleasing to you and may it bear fruit in every good work, increasing the knowledge of you. May your church this morning be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. And give all endurance and patience to follow you, Jesus, with joy by giving thanks to the Father. As we share in the inheritance Pray this and believe you will answer. In the name of Christ, amen.